You just push it down. Yeah, there it goes. You, you can tell I don't need a mic, so I for, forgive me for having a loud voice, and I won't shout. I'm kind of into wanting to talk quietly this morning, so I won't uh, be yelling and preaching at you. And um, my my opportunity over the weekend was um, to I didn't know my, my wife didn't hear me speak this weekend, but um, I want to do I do want to say thank you Calvary Chapel for allowing me to come. Um, to be with any Calvary Chapel for me is a blessing. Um, I, like I said, near us we happen to have Calvary Chapel Philadelphia, uh, Joe Foch and, and his young people. Um, when we first bought the camp in 1992, um, Rob Paoletti, who was their music director, um, brought the youth group. Um, instead of taking them down to the coast where they get to be on the beach and do soul winning uh, for a week of ministry in the summer, it was his decision, instead of taking them to the shore uh, where it's nice and kind of boardwalky, all kind of stuff, he said, instead of that, we're going to go to this old camp this guy named Jack Kranz bought, and we're going to start pouring our youth from Calvary Chapel, Philly, into Coatesville Kids. And so since 1992, uh, Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia, <laughs> has been pouring into our kids... And, um, and we're in many generations now. I started in jail in 73, 1973. I was 23 years old. I'll be 69 next week. And um, I think I'm younger than I look or, or something like that. I'm older than I look. I think that's what I want to say. <laughs> I'm older than I look, I guess. And um, my wife's a lot, lot younger. <laughs> We've been married for uh, almost 49 years. And, um, and so, you know, we got an early start. And um, like I said, we've been in this kind of ministry really most of my life. I grew up in the city where I'm actually, uh, that broke my heart. Our city is not a big city at all. I mean, Boston is huge compared to my city. It's a little city in a very wealthy county called Chester County, Pennsylvania, which is in the southeast area of, uh, of Pennsylvania, about an hour outside of Philadelphia. Um, but anybody that can tell you, um, Coatesville is the high crime area of our county. 33% of our prisoners in our county jail come from our city. And so um, I saw it when I was in high school, and God broke my heart in high school and then brought me into that ministry um, to be a chaplain. And so I went to high school. I went to a, a great high school that is known for great basketball teams. Rip Hamilton was a a graduate from our high school, he's a lot younger than me, played for the Pistons, and, but Coatesville could always produce a good basketball team, but you know, the city was more interested in how those boys played basketball than what they went home to at night. And they sure didn't care what happened to them after they graduated or if they even did. And so a lot of our basketball players, I think of a guy named Harold Ford, who's the same age as me right now, Harold, He's been doing, he's been doing, I'm going to say he's been doing jail on a, a kind of a lifetime on the installment plan. He just never, since eighth grade, was really able to stay out of a life of crime. And, and so now at the age of, same age as me, age 69, he's in more of a geriatric prison, uh, really waiting to die. Um, he's not going home anymore. He's, he's committed his last crime. And, uh, but he was the point guard in our high school team. And, Har and a young man named Harvey Dixon who I sat with in homeroom. Kranz, Dixon were in the same homeroom, C and D. Uh, Harvey was uh, 
just the other day, a, a, a dear barber uh, in Coatesville who's been there with his family forever, older than me, he's about 74, and I mentioned Harvey and, and, and this barber who happens to come from the, a black community, and he, he said, you know, that Harvey was a gangster. That's what he said about my high school classmate. I said, well, I wouldn't call him a gangster, um, but he kind of was a gangster, I guess, and he died by age 21, but he had two boys that were twins, um, Harvey and Bitsy, and we watched Harvey and Bitsy grow up and come to jail, and um, their daddy was shot and killed and died. And, uh, and so th those kinds of things in my high school years were kind of heartbreaking. And, and um, coming from a home where I had a dad that prayed with me, a dad that loved me. Uh, my mom died in my senior year of high school from cancer. And, and I kind of knew by the time I left high school, uh, with the great fortune of growing up in a home that honored the Lord, um, I, I knew at my high school graduation that I wanted to spend my life, if I could, uh, working with deep, deeply troubled people. And I say that because there was a book called Ministry to Deeply Troubled People uh, a long, long, long time ago that I had seen. And, and that was kind of what I'd say. You know, Jack, what are you going to do when you get out of high school? I want to work with deeply troubled people. And I thought I was going to be a psychologist or something. And I ended up uh, being a prison chaplain. And, and so I'm not here to talk about me today, um, and everything that was said was way beyond um, the truth, and uh, so your preacher tells a little bit of a fib once in a while. <laughs> I'm far from anything that he's talking about, and we, if one word that I think describes me, and we talked about it coming here today back from camp, and I said it a lot over the weekend, I think, if the guys listen to me, if there's maybe one word that describes me, I'm not sure what you guys would call it, but... Um, I hope it would start with the letter D, desperate, okay? If you really want to know me, I'm a desperate man. Does that mean I'm going to hurt you? No. It just means I know I deserve hell, but I know that Jesus went to a cross for a sinner like me. Amen. And I don't say it to exaggerate. I've said it my whole life. Not my whole life, but since I've been in a prison and probably would have said it even before that. I, and I mean this not to be exaggerating. It is not an exaggerated statement. In all my years in prison, 45, and I've just about met everybody that's committed crimes in my county for 45 years, so you can imagine what we've seen and who we've met. We've met little boys, not little boys, but 15-year-old boys that have waited till they got big enough and strong enough to kill their dad for all the bad things they did to them and their mother and set them on fire. We've met men who have... Uh, absolutely reached inside of their dear wives and taken out fetuses, little babies, and killed them. We've met uh, men who've killed their mothers and grandmothers. We've met women who've strangled their 12-year-olds as they slept, and men who shook their babies to death on New Year's Day and beat their other kids to death with curtain rods and everything that goes in between all that. And I say that to say this, and I'm not exaggerating. From the view of Calvary's cross, from the view of Calvary's cross, you're looking at the man right here who needed Jesus more than anybody I've ever met in my entire life. And I mean that with all my heart. I don't believe I'm savable apart from Calvary. You understand that? Amen. And if I wouldn't step on your toes, I'm going to tell you right now, from what I know in this precious book right here, there's not a man or woman in this room who's savable apart from the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And that's not, a, that's not a statement against you. It's a statement of love for you. 
to tell you that he loved you so much that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And it's not just about that escape from hell, but literally it's that we might somehow, by his mercy and long, 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 long suffering, uh, put up with us long enough that maybe we get it and we begin to love him back just a little bit. And maybe we'd be willing to spend our lives for his glory. Um, I'm desperate today because working in the ministry for all the years we've been in it, I'm far from perfect. I'm not a businessman. I am not an organized person. I just have a passionate heart, which means I get into a whole lot of places, and God's opened great doors uh, for us. And, and I think one thing that resonates with people, and I, I guess it did this weekend here, um, I think people today, and I'm saying this as an observer, I think people today are hungry, uh, not just for the truth, because I think deep inside people know what the truth is. I really do. I, I preached a sermon a long, long time ago, three things every man knows, you know, three things every man knows. And, and maybe you'll disagree with me today, but I think I know three things that you know, whether you want to admit it or not. Because I will tell you, God tells us in his word that you know these three things. I won't go to chapter and verse, this isn't my message, but number one, I believe everybody in this room, according to God's word, knows there's a living and true God. That he's powerful, he's a creator, and God says you know it because when you look up at the heavens, you know there's a designer, you know there's something, someone there who is all powerful. The Bible says that you know there's a God. Matter of fact, the Bible even says in that same passage in Romans, you're without excuse to say there isn't one. The evidence would be against you. Number two, the Bible says that every one of us in this room knows he's a sinner. I don't have to tell you that. And I said that one time in jail, and one guy stood up and actually got mad at me for calling him a sinner. I, I, didn't, I didn't mean to call him a sinner. I just said, God says you're one. I didn't say you're one. He said, well, how do you know I'm a sinner? I said, well, the Bible says that um, if you don't know God's uh, law by his word, you know, like the Jews were given the Ten Commandments and given the wonderful scriptures, and then we've been given them, and all of us in this room are probably without excuse because we know what the Word of God says. But even if you didn't have the Word of God, you would know you're a sinner because God made you in such a way that you have a conscience. And it accuses you itself of sin. You may not know why, but you know you're a sinner. You may not use those terms. Now, let's put these two things together. Let's do a little math. Number one, I know there's a God. You may be denying it right now. That's okay, but God says you won't have an excuse. I'm just telling you what he said. There's a God. I'm a sinner. Now I got a problem. Because the third thing you know, according to the scriptures, you know that that God is going to judge sin. And so now you got a problem. Paul preached in, in Athens, in Acts chapter 17, he said that God requires all men, all men, that's generically speaking, all mankind, all men everywhere. He requires all men everywhere to repent. 
As a matter of fact, it goes on to say in Acts chapter 17, God says, I have appointed a day in which I, the Lord, will judge the world by that man whom I raised from the dead. And he will judge you righteously, meaning he will not make a mistake when he brings his judgment down on me or you. That's a problem. Because the Bible also says that we are naked and bare before him with whom we have to do. There's nothing hidden. That might be real good news. I hope it is good news for you today. Everything I just said sounds like bad news, doesn't it? But it's actually good news. It's wonderful news. Because I just told you there's a God in heaven who sees you naked. I mean, he knows everything. That means he knows everything about you. Mine, what you're thinking, what you're feeling. He knows every tongue on, every word on your tongue before you speak. This is all out of the Bible. He knows what's hurting you. He knows your pain. He knows what I talked about this weekend with the men a lot was the term heart cry. It's not really a Bible word, but I, I love the term heart cry. If I had a chance to sit down with you this afternoon and spend a couple hours with you, I would, maybe I would love to just ask you one big question, and that would be, what is the cry of your heart? What is it that really, really, really is happening deep down inside? You know what? God knows. He knows what you're, what you're fighting against, what, what you're fearing. He knows all that about me. And you know what? Man, am I glad he does. You don't. The pastor doesn't. My wife might. But I think there's things in my life that, um, you know, I'm, I just say, God, help me. Help me. I want to finish well. I want my three little boys, who are now men, and fathers, we have 10 grandchildren and so many adopted kids in a sense of we're Mr. Jack and Miss Sue since a long, 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 long time ago. And I'll tell you what, I just don't want to disappoint anybody who thinks I'm anything but what I am. And I already told you what I am. I'm the most desperate man that needs the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to atone and cover my guilty life in the presence of a holy God. And I want to finish well. Now, I'm not in the mood today to preach a lot. I mean, preach a sense of a fiery message here today. I know I'm being translated, and, and that always kind of um, makes me want to slow down a little bit and be tender in what I'm reading and saying. But I want you to turn in your Bibles. I'm going to pray and turn in your Bibles uh, to Hebrews chapter 9 for just a moment. And I was going to read this whole chapter because it's such a great chapter, but I'm not going to do that for the sake of translating and all of that. Um, so I'm just going to read a few verses. Of, but let's just pray. Father, I thank you for hearing me. I am not worthy, as my wife and I used to sing in a kid's choir, I am not worthy, the least of your favor. But Jesus left heaven for me. 
So thank you, Lord, for proof that you're a God who, as one man said, is the hound of heaven. And so, Father, I pray in this room this morning that the things I read and say from your word in the few moments we have would speak to every heart. And every one of us, Lord, needs you to be that one who seeks us, Lord, who, who calls our hearts. And there's not one person in this room this morning that doesn't need your work in their heart. Thank you, Lord, that you right now are doing surgery. Right now, you, you know the heart cry of everybody in this room. And Lord, maybe there's somebody in this room that needs surgery so bad because maybe they're sitting here, Lord, and they're saying, I don't have any heart cry at all. There's nothing bothering me. And perhaps, Lord, that one needs you the most this morning. I pray that no one, no one, would leave this place this morning without a burdened, broken heart in a good way. It's good to have a heart broken. It's good to be contrite. It's good to be sober of mind. It's good to be poor in spirit. It's good to be desperate. I know seated here, Lord, are men who confess this weekend that some of them are in positions of service for you, Lord, and it's been hard. I think of a young man here, Lord, who I don't want to mention his name because I could. He's a first grade teacher, Lord. And he just wants to be able to be a more effective teacher in what sometimes seems like a world out of control. So, Lord, I pray for my dear brother who's teaching first grade that tomorrow when he goes back into that classroom and faces those tender kids, help him to realize, Lord, he might be the closest thing to Jesus they'll ever see. And so, Lord, he's going to have to be a broken man. He's going to have to be a tender man. He's going to have to have love that isn't his. It comes from you. And so, Lord, I pray that he would go to class tomorrow desperate. Go to class tomorrow broken, but triumphant because he knows who he serves. And we thank you that you're not a dead God, but a living God who even prays for us. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I have you turn to Hebrews 9, and I, this is one of those books that I've been falling more and more in love with. I mean, I, like you, have read Hebrews, but I can honestly say at the age of 68, almost 69, I haven't really, I haven't really, let's say, fallen in love with Hebrews. I'm in love with it now. The men in this room who heard me speak this week will know there's a couple books in the Bible I love a lot, and one of them was Song of Songs. I mentioned that a lot. But Hebrews, and I know it was written primarily to the Hebrews, to the Jews, because it was one of those books to help those who were under the old law understand how 
the great tabernacle of Moses and the law and all of that that was so good and helped us understand the holiness of God through the veil and through the cherubim and through the blood sacrifices and through the burnt offerings and all the things you read about from Genesis through the early part of Deuteronomy. You read about all of that, Moses receiving the law and, and God's judgment and his fire upon the altar and the shedding of the blood of the lamb and all of that. All of that was good, but yet it was all pointing, as you know, to something far better. That all the blood and bull of goats and lambs in the Old Testament, even though that blood was important in God's economy, we knew from Scripture that the blood of bulls and animals does not take away sin. It was faith that would come with the blood of the lamb. Recognizing sin and laying that lamb upon the altar and seeing it burn up and God saying it was a sweet aroma to him. Because it all pointed to the day when one would come who would be the very one who is the Lamb of God. I want to read a quote, and I'm hesitating to do this because of the translator. I don't make it hard on her, but I'll kind of read it slow. I'll read it slow for just translation reasons as best I can. It's a quote by a, a Puritan from England named John Owen about the finished work of Jesus Christ, and, and he was commenting actually on a verse in chapter 9 of the book of Hebrews. If I may, let me just read first his quote. And he's speaking about the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. The holiest then is the gracious presence of God. Remember the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies, the Shekinah glory, the veil, and one day a year, the priest would go in and there on the day of atonement would bring the blood of the lamb and God could easily have killed the priest inside that veil, but that veil would go with the blood and put it upon the Ark of the Covenant and the priest would come out having made atonement for the people through the blood of the lamb. That's just a little picture. But in the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies was behind a veil in the tabernacle. But the real Holy of Holies is the gracious presence of God. Whereunto believers, those who put faith in what God has promised, draw nigh or close in confidence of the atonement, the shedding of blood that was made for them and of acceptance thereon. For the Lord Jesus himself was the priest. He is the priest. He became the sacrifice. He was the offerer, and he was the lamb. And as the blood of the Old Testament was sprinkled before the ark and the mercy seat to apply a blood covering made unto all the sacred promises of God's presence and goodwill, 
So from this presentation of the offering of Jesus Christ, the offering of Jesus Christ as a lamb that had been slain in his appearing before God, Christ finishing all of his work and appearing before God, all the applications of the benefits of God's promises now have been proceeded to you and to me. In other words, Christ did something that the blood of the Old Testament lamb could never have done. He brought us into a personal, present relationship with a living, holy God. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, but Christ being come a high priest of good things, good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not the Old Testament tent, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, speaking of Jesus Christ, he entered in once unto the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Let me go back and read that again. This is one of the most important things. It will be probably almost the most important thing you will hear today and maybe all week. Again, verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. That's the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. He, Jesus Christ, entered in once into the holy place. And what's the holy place? It's the very presence of God having obtained eternal redemption for us. Please hear that, folks. If there's a God and I'm a sinner and he's going to judge sinners and there's a day appointed when every man is going to have to stand before him in judgment by the very one whom he raised from the dead, I have good news for you. That one didn't just die on a cross and bury three days and rose again. He went up into heaven. He ascended into heaven. He's seated right now at the right hand of God the Father making intercession for you and me. We have a faithful high priest who has obtained an eternal redemption for us. Verse 13 of Hebrews 9, for if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, Old Testament, how much more shall the blood of Jesus Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For this cause, he is the mediator of a new covenant, a new testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first promise, they who are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. 
Now, that's a lot. But what it's basically saying is that is the gospel in many ways. That's the good news. The good news is there is a Savior provided by God himself. God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus, who came and took upon himself our flesh and there through the cruel death of the cross. He didn't just come and do it in one day. He came and dwelt among men for 30 years. And when he was baptized, I marvel at what I read not long ago. We heard the heavens open when Jesus was baptized, and the heavens open, and a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's a powerful statement from heaven because what that's saying is that in 30 years of living in this world, God in the flesh, he lived in this body 30 years without sin. He lived from infancy to age 30, almost as if God was preparing a lamb for the slaughter. Because you and I know in the Old Testament, the lamb that was offered up to God for sin had to be a spotless lamb. It had to be a male in its first year without any blemish because that lamb would be a picture of the lamb of God who would come and die for our sin and shed his blood. We just read this deep book of Hebrews, just this little snapshot. But this little snapshot tells me I have a Savior. He knows me by my name. Many, many years ago in Philadelphia, back in the 80s, I guess that's not real long ago, but it seemed like it was a lifetime ago, Billy Graham was coming to Philadelphia to do a crusade. And he was coming to what was then called Veterans Stadium. And, and um, I knew where the office was for the Billy Graham crusade in our area. So I, I said to my wife, I think she was with me, I said, let's stop in at the Adams Mark Hotel and, and see if Billy Graham crusade would maybe come to jails. Why not ask? So I said, when Billy Graham's in Philadelphia, could we have um, him come to jails or have the crusade in our prisons? And I was talking to a man named uh, Ron Shea, who, if you know anything about the old Billy Graham crusades, a man named George Beverly Shea used to sing for him. And it was George Beverly Shea's son. And he said, you know what? Sounds like a great idea to me. I'm going to ask the home office. And if we can get the Graham crusade to come to jails, we're going to do it. Well, Billy Graham didn't come, but we went to eight major prisons in Pennsylvania. More than 8,000 uh, prisoners attended the meetings we had. And a wonderful man that was sent to us from the Graham organization preached in all of those prisons. And I'll never forget, I'll never forget what his message was. He preached from the gospel story of Zacchaeus. One thing I, I'm like Zacchaeus, I guess I'm a wee little man, right? I used to kid, Jesus must have been short because Zeke Zacchaeus had to climb up in a tree to find him in the crowd. But that wasn't the story. The Bible says he was a wee little man, I guess. And so, but I remember this preacher preached in eight prisons. I remember one prison, it was all women, and you couldn't come to the chapel unless you, were, you drew a lottery. Because there was only room for about 100 women to hear him preach out of a jail of 800. Imagine that. So 100 young ladies got to come in to hear the preacher. 
And again, he preached in all eight prisons the same message. I thought, this guy preaches the same thing everywhere he goes, but I'm telling you, I'm glad he did. And he told the story of Zacchaeus. And Jesus walked up to him, and remember what Jesus said? He called him by his name. He said, Zacchaeus? Wow, he knows my name. You come down out of that tree. I'm going to your house today. It was a simple message he told in that prison. But I'll never forget as he continued to preach that simple message to the women and the men in these prisons, he would say this. He said, you know what? He knows you by your name. He knows you by your name. And then he started to talk about how much Jesus loves you. And we sang a song in every prison that most of the prisoners knew. Somehow they learned it when they were kids. I don't even know if kids know this song anymore because our kids have been so distanced from the truth for so long. Maybe the last two generations in many homes in my city have not darkened the door of a church. But little kids even from the hood used to hear this song, didn't they? Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. And a vocalist would come up in that Billy Graham crusade and sing that little song. And there wasn't a prison in those eight prisons where the prisoners began to sing that song with her. And many of them that day knew that Jesus knew them by their name. But you know what's even more wonderful? He knew their sin. And he knows yours. He knows mine. At age 68, 69, maybe it's the older you get, I don't know, but the more I worry. Life accumulates. It doesn't get smaller. It accumulates. When it was just Sue and I, it was just Sue and I. Then we went and had three boys. Life started to accumulate. Started working in jail. Started working with the kids of the prisoners. And God kept opening doors. And even the fact I'm here in Boston today, this is part of that accumulation. What am I doing so far from home today on this Lord's Day? I don't need this. It's accumulation. It doesn't get smaller. And that's why perhaps sometimes now the Lord wakes me up in the middle of the night and I start to worry. And then because we got grandkids and, and all the things that they're, that all they're dealing with, that our culture's thrown upon our children. Can you imagine the kids here in Boston today without a praying dad and a praying mom? And a cell phone? Put those together. What we give our kids on cell phones, and there's not a dad or a mom at home that's taking them by the hand and praying with them. Where are we going? And yet every one of those children will know there's someone up there that's got to be caring for me. Something's deeply wrong inside. And most of them will never meet 
one person who loved them enough to say, I'll spend time with you. Jesus knows you by your name. And right here in Boston, here at this Calvary Chapel, in this hotel, you have a mission field that is unbelievably wonderful at your fingertips. Amen. I mean, I'm going to tell you right now, and I say this in love, this is not a rebuke, this is a challenge. Okay, hear this as a challenge, not a rebuke. I'm not being mean. Shame on you. If you don't, in the days and weeks and months ahead, get on your faces before God. If not just for the university students, if not just for the families that are here grieving over their loved ones in your hospitals, if not the children just a few blocks away in the brick houses that pastor showed me. I mean, it's not like you got to go far away with a bus and get people. They're right outside your door. And probably some of these very same dear, 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 precious people are sitting in this room right now. And we may not know you by your name, but the living God who made the heavens and the earth and that beautiful, beautiful heaven and far beyond it. He's alive. He's in heaven. Seated at his right hand is, is one named Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And he's not sleeping. He is praying for you and for me. If you don't need him, I ache for you. Because whether you want to know it or not, you are one breath from eternity. On May the 2nd, 2017, I'm a pretty healthy man for being 69. I had suffered a heart attack. I was working hard, I'll admit that. I was doing something I never do, hoeing my garden around my house for three hours and just kicking tail for three hours and I failed my own cardiology test. And if I hadn't been, I told the men this, if I hadn't been just about five minutes from our hospital with my crazy son driving, and nobody was in the accident ward, and there just happened to be the best heart surgeon in the hospital at that moment, and nobody was in surgery. And when the crash cart was called, and my wife and my boys were pushed away from my feet, and I was going down for the eight count with my left descending artery, totally blocked, the Widowmaker. That was on a Tuesday. On a Thursday, I walked out of the hospital with four stents. But you know what? I laid on that bed. I was wide awake. I, I had no anxiety, no fear. I didn't even know what was, I, I did not really worry what was about going on. My family was, I wasn't. I guess because I guess I knew my next breath. But I want to ask you right now, and I have to close, I'm watching the time. I want to ask you an honest question. Are you living right now with the awareness that there's just an unseen veil right now between you and eternity? And on the other side of that veil is either a vast reality called hell and eternity or a savior 
who knows you by name, seated on a throne, making intercession for you as a high priest. One day he's going to stand up and he's going to come again as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he's going to come as a judge, not as a savior. Remember, God said he has appointed a day in which he will judge every man by that man whom he raised from the dead. And when he judges, he will judge us in righteousness. Now, what will make you righteous? Let me ask you an honest question. In the eyes of a holy God, what makes you righteous? I see my friend Luis saying, nothing. You're right, Luis. Not going to pick on you, man, but nothing going to make you righteous in front of God. Amen. And nothing's going to make me righteous in front of God. Amen. About me. You see, I know I'm the most deserving man in this room of hell, not heaven. You understand that? You think 45 years being a prison chaplain and doing ministry with children and loving my kids and all that stuff is going to get me to heaven? Where is that in the Bible? I know who I am, according to the Bible. I'm a sinner born of the seed of Adam, just like you, which means I'm going to die, and I'm going to die a sinner without hope unless I bow my heart to a king who happened to humble himself to be a lamb. And he knows you by your name. And the good news is, the last thing he wants to do is condemn you. He proved it by coming to bear your sin and mine on a cruel Roman cross. That's great news. But most people in this city either mock it, don't understand it, never heard it, never seen it. And for whatever reason, Calvary Chapel, Boston, you're in big trouble. God put you in a place where much of this will fall on you to make it clear. And unless you fall in love with him who sits on that throne, I weep for the kids within blocks of this wind, blocks of this pulpit. God help you to say, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. And don't sing the rest of it unless you mean it. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Let's pray. Lord, no man can speak a word that could ever penetrate a heart and mind enough not at all to stir a man or woman to confess their desperate need of you. Only you, the Holy Spirit, could do that. And so, Lord, right now in this room, I'm going to confess that I'm the first one in this room, Lord, that needs your work. I need your help. I need your salvation. I need your long-suffering patience. 
I need you to do surgery in my heart. You know my last day. You know everything about me, Lord. And you know everything about everybody in this room. And I'm asking you, Lord, right now, if there's someone here that has no relationship with you at all, oh God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would convince them today that you know them by their name. And I pray, Father, you do what you do best, that you, Lord, would knock on the door of their heart. That you'd convince them of sin and righteousness and judgment. And God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would come upon this church. They would realize the great opportunity they have. The stewardship now they have in this city. Help them to go deep and personal with what's nearest them. And if it's your will, Lord, extend their reach to the ends of the earth. If today is the last day of my life, and it may be, may it be said that I said, behold the Lamb. Thank you for not just dying for sinners, but for giving us the power to have victory over sin. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.